All right. Well, uh, I'm going to start the podcast. Uh, welcome everybody else to our conversation. Um, this is the Seeking Health podcast with Josiah Meyer. And I want to continue a conversation with David Valenta, Va Valentine, sorry. Valentine. Valentine. Yeah. Um, and David's a friend that I've had on Facebook for a while, and he's from the other side of the pond. And um, something that I've been really interested in is as I've been trying to figure out where I fit in evangelicalism and yeah. kind of the, uh, the bottom line is that evangelicalism, as I know it, is an American institution. All the academics and all the people are from, mm. are all American. Um, everybody I read, everybody I listen to, all the music is all American with a very small smattering of UK and Australian voices, but 99% American. Um, oh, interesting. That, that in itself is fascinating because that's not what evangelicalism is to me at all. So that's see, totally what I want to talk I see, about. I see United States evangelicalism as very much a sort of side, um, a, a noisy, a wealthy, noisy side dish rather than the mainstream. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Because I mean, they, they are really quite loud <laughs> and yeah. I can't hear anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that's not how I would think of it. I don't think I was, you know, when you said evangelicalism is mainly based in the States, I thought, really? Wow. Because <laughs> I, think, I think they're the sort of um, crazy cousins, you know, they're the sort of uh, dangerous relatives, really. Okay. Um, so we were just kind of chatting, getting to know each other, because this is kind of a weird thing. Uh, I, I admit I initiated something kind of weird because we were chatting, we go way back because um, I did my, my master's thesis in uh, the patristics in the question was the early church early, was early Christianity pa uh, pacifistic? Yeah. Um, and so I wrote, it wasn't com really a master's thesis, it was a reading project, but it was a, a very lengthy one. And so that kind of made me a early church nerd. And then I found patristics for Protestants, which is your Facebook group. Yeah. Which is very well moderated, by the way. I just wanted to say thank you. I've joined and left a lot of Facebook groups, and I've stuck with Patristics for Protestants for a very long time. Because well, people, P, you can see it as a model of what I've just said about evangelicalism. Because mm. you know, I've, I've recruited a moderator team. I, I didn't start it; a Canadian started it. Um, okay, John Sharp, a Canadian retired engineer five years ago, started Patristics for Protestants, along with a whole, he's like a church planter on Facebook. He started loads of different groups. Okay. Um, in, he's kind of hyperactive in his retirement. And he, and what he did very sensibly was delegate, as soon as he found someone suitable on each one, he delegated. So he quickly chose me within months and said, would you take on Patristics for Protestants? And I said, all right, because I'd come, I'd just moved to Cumbria to a new life with my, I was a single parent with my son and, um, his, my son's mother left when he was small and so we'd been together and we moved out to Cambria because we felt God calling us here and uh, so complete exodus for me. David called our car Abraham, that's my son David, he called our car Abraham because we were moving such a long way from home and um, so we, uh, sorry, where, sorry where was I going with that? <laughs> I can't yeah like we know each other online Oh yeah, and, and I took on this, and the thing is, one of my main projects coming to Cumbria is I felt the Lord saying, I want you to dig into church history, start with patristics, 
So I really felt a call to that. So when I found Facebook, this was Facebook was all new to me. I'd avoided it for 10 years and um, or how long, seven years since it had started. And John got me on this forum. I joined very reluctantly, but I found it an absolute gift. You know, if I want to learn patristics, I learn through dialogue. I learn through interacting with people. Um, so I thought I discovered Facebook through patristics process. So um, and it's blown me away. It's been I loved I, I love having somewhere to share what I've got to write somewhere to show what I'm learning and also people to listen to. So, um, but I had to choose like, like running a church as it grew. I, and now we're at 2000. I had to choose leaders to help me run the show. And I've got, and that they, I've got a balance of English and American because I wanted to preserve I, some Americans and Canadians have fed back to me that it feels quite European. Mm -hmm. um, and I've realized that's because I've deliberately avoided this default shoot first and ask questions later approach that you get from Americans. So, not yeah. all Americans are like that at all, but um, and but I'm really strict about policing this ethos where everyone is pleasant and civil. People don't; they're not sarcastic, they're not bombastic, and anyone who comes along like that, we get rid of them. And yeah. I managed to I managed to find Americans who got that really well. And yeah, my sort of bromance is with Micah Joseph, this um, Los Angeles cop, um, Los Angeles County policeman who uh, we met in Oxford last year because he came here with his family and. Uh, so that's patristics for Protestants, but I, I'm trying to do a sort of transatlantic dialogue, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm learn we're learning patristics, but we're also coping with each other's cultures as we go along. Yeah. I've had some tensions, like one of the moderators who's American, he, um, you know, when I sometimes said critical things about where he's coming from, I mean, and all in a very civil way, he said, you know, you're just anti-American. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> Not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm just European. I'm coming from a different place. Um, but, you know, I've made a very firm, I've, I've tried very hard to not be culturally prejudiced the other way, you know, because after all, almost all our members are American men. Um, yeah. We're like 4% four, 4 women and about 10% non-American. Uh, so... But yeah, the Americans seemed the gentle scholarly Americans really like yourself. Well, sorry, Canadian, <laughs> really, really appreciate um, the, the the ethos. So yeah, I've tried to keep it like that. Not too academic, not too popular, but not abrasive. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, maybe I'll explain my point. Um, a lot of Americans are surprised by this and even some Canadians are surprised by this, that for me, everything I receive is American, you know? Um, yeah, like I said, the music, and I, I for many years, listened to uh, Mark Driscoll as kind of the main pastor I listened to. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or when I wanted a break from that, I listened to John Piper, um, you right. know. I'm, I'm, I'm less, less anti-John Piper than Mark Driscoll, yeah. Right, and, but I mean, he, Mark Driscoll kind of just, um, it's the same doctrine as, as John Piper. He just makes it a little bit more abrasive or a little bit more easy to listen to, I guess, if you like it. Um, but you know, Wayne Grudem is the guy that wrote the theology textbooks and, and John MacArthur and, you know, all those sorts of oh, MacArthur. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like I'm vaguely aware of like people like N.T. Wright, um, Right. You see, I'm the other way around. So N.T. Wright would be very central for me and everyone I'm working with this side. Um, we think, right, and we're all critical of Wright in different ways because he's just one person. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's a very central evangelical theologian over this side. And so, for example, when he had an argument with um, John Piper in 2008, 2009, yeah. about justification, you know, I was very much team right, not team Piper. Um, but I, I appreciate that Piper is one of the better guys um, on the American side. Um, and I, Mark Driscoll was once, I thought, an admirable chap, but he just seems to have got worse. Um, but the, the thing is, what we don't have here is the celebrity culture. Um, so, our, you know, we're very modest and European in our approach in Britain. And um, so the, yeah, the, the whole, like John MacArthur for me is a total victim of the celebrity culture. You know, he's really underqualified for, for his level of profile. And, um, and he, just, he just doesn't know, any, he, he's, I find him incredibly ignorant. He doesn't understand what he's talking about. Um, Piper is a lot better. Piper's got an excellent relationship with um, Don Carson. And uh, Carson anchors him theologically. And they wrote a lovely book together about theologians and pastors and the interaction, the symbiosis of the two. But no, MacArthur, I think he's just, just, you know, very popular, very ignorant, very... And the poor chap, he's like a sort of Donald Trump of Christianity, because I think he's been raised up beyond his pay grade, as it were. And the thing with MacArthur is he's got stuck. And I've seen this happen before to a number of Americans, is that they start off heroic, defending something good and orthodox and sensible, um, like Tim LaHaye was like this in his early days, and then they end up just turning into these awful old conservatives who just have completely lost, lost grip on the gospel. And um, yeah, no one listens to them over here. So this is, I'm already having a lot of fun because um, like I really just feel homeless because for many years I kind of felt like okay, this is my home is, you know, American evangelicalism. And it is a bit of a diverse group. You do have different voices. You know, you, if, if you don't like Mark Driscoll, you could listen to John Piper or you could listen to, those are just people off the top of my head. There are tons of different voices. Yeah. Um, this is something well, I picked up in the States from talking to Americans in, that I've met in London. So I was in London for 18 years. Um, people from all over the world, including the States. And, um, one thing I pick up is the immensity, the complexity. Yeah. Um, the, Europe, the American church isn't just extremely wealthy and loud and, you know, owns all the technology, but they've also, um, they, uh, it's much more diverse. But one interesting thing I've learned from Americans is that because you've got this, what, what Britain used to have was this huge national culture. So we had a whole national Methodist set up and a whole national Anglican set up and Baptist set up. Of course, the British church has been in exile for 100 years since the First World War. So we've shrunk and we've got closer to each other in exile. And, um, and it means that we're, we're far less divided. You know, we work together. We're very ecumenical here um, compared to the States. So, for example, one pastor said to me, you could live on an avenue in some suburb in, in the United States. Um, and you, you might be a famous you know, speaker from your stream like Presbyterianism or something, some mass, massive national, millions of people, millions, billions of dollars. And, um, and then there might be someone down the end of your street who might be a huge figure in their stream, but you wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. And they, they wouldn't perhaps know of each other's existence or, or at least know anything about each other, um, which is a recipe for prejudice and faction. So I think Britain used to be like that because friends of mine who remember, you know, the old days of the empire and stuff, I had friends from the you remember the 30s and so on when I was young and because um, remember I'm quite old and um, they uh, it struck me that 
Britain used to be like that. We were, we were also, our church was rich, it was powerful, and it was very divided. And the states is like, the, the most grievous thing for the United States for me, because um, I got involved with Bethel stuff for a while, um, they're enormously controversial in the states. And I know why, I mean, they are quite pot potty, but the, 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 I became aware that Pentecostalism has got this massive um, divide from the Calvinists. The you see, I'm coming from most church, all, almost all the churches I've ever belonged to have been reformed, basically reformed in their theology, like the guys you've cited, but also I'm charismatic. And um, so, um, and, and the, the, the thing that struck me um, about the States is that reformed and charismatic are almost contradiction in terms. So when I've talked to Americans, they said, well, how can you be Calvinist and charismatic? And I thought, well, everyone I know is. And um, yeah, that's why MacArthur's so bizarre to me. But we did have um, John Stott. John Stott's a big name in, you know, reformed English theology, you know, a big name in world evangelicalism. And Stott was, you know, anti-charismatic. Not with the same venom as MacArthur, but um, but yeah, he was also anti-women leadership. You know, that's a big thing here. That's a huge divide of Britain from the States is that in Britain, you know, you do get churches that are very anti-women doing anything. Um, but most churches here and of course the Church of England totally relaxed about it. Hmm. So, you know, and the thing is, I, I go to, you know, I have women bishop, my, one of my bishops is a woman, you know, we have women, my mother is a vicar, you know, we, the idea of women not leading is just, we're, we're very past that in Britain, and we don't see that as a sliding slope to liberalism at all. Wow. We, think it's, we think it's part of orthodoxy. And the thing is, this is a cultural divide. So Americans are all locked into an ideology, an awful lot of the evangelical Americans, it comes up on patristics Protestants quite often. I have to be careful what I say, but... um. You know, it comes up a lot because it, it's just a cultural difference. Americans have got all locked into this thing of women couldn't possibly, and this is why, and Paul says, and they, all the Brits are looking at different passages in Paul and saying it's blatantly obvious women can lead. So, yeah, we, we're um, there's a huge cultural divide that masquerades as a theological divide. Yeah. America is just more conservative about these cultural things than Europe is. Well, yeah, and I'm feeling like just homeless as far as like, I mean, especially just this last year, it's just like, I can't associate with that. You know, I feel like just this need to distance myself from like a lot of people that I considered friends that I considered very rational people that I considered. I mean, you have post-secondary education, you have a bachelor's, some of you have a master's. And yet the things that you're posting about COVID and about Trump and about, um, even like the way that you're putting blinders on about racism in your own country. It's just like, I can't be associated with that. And I don't feel like that yeah. uh, reflects well at all on the gospel, but I don't know <laughs> where to turn. Like, I don't know what else is out there, you know, like well, the last five years since Trump won the nomination, the last five years is, and of course it's got stronger now with this election, but this, the, the divide that we didn't even know was there. You know, we're all talking the same language. We thought we had the same theology. Um, but I think what it showed, you know, I, talk, I used the word exile earlier for churches being in exile. I think a lot of churches in the Protestant world have a very exile mentality in the sense that whatever their rhetoric, their actual way of thinking about the gospel is very privatized, very subcultural. And um, so what we don't have, I don't think, is a stable political theology so um, ten, what tends to happen is Christians who want to be orthodox in their thinking with a small O, you know, what we call 
I don't like the word evangelical anymore. A lot of us have gone off it, but I'd say just orthodox, you know, rooted into the traditions of the church. Um, but um, a lot of us have, have just realized that we've got a different political theology. There was a really good, an, an Irish friend of mine who runs a huge church in London. Um, he, um, he's a lovely chap um, with a passion for evangelism. And he's, you know, he's, he's done the Bethel stuff as well as the John Piper stuff. He bridges between the two, which you can do here. We're quite eclectic here. Um, and he's posted a lovely thing from Christianity Today. I don't know when it was written. I don't think it was this year. Um, talk, talking about how the Trump administration has divide, has shown the divide in theologies, that some, some evangelicals have got what he called a remnant theology, which is, I think, where you and I would be coming from. Yeah. And others have got what he called the, what did he call it? Re or Yeah. It was the idea of dominion. Yeah, the, it's sort of pre-exilic attitude of, you know, we own the territory and the church has power. And that dynamic is right there through the church. So I find that quite persuasive. Yeah. Christianity is always flippity flops. At least in patristics, the big flippity flop is pre-Nicene, post-Nicene. Yeah. Um, the church goes from being a persecuted minority to being an imperial faith. And of course, some faiths are more comfortable. Like Islam wants to be an imperial faith. Islam doesn't really work in exile. Argu arguably, Islam isn't Islam until it's in charge. Yeah. Um, and there are forms of Judaism that we never see anymore that used to be like that. But um, Christianity is is a, one of those faiths that's more comfortable in the, on the margins. It, it's yeah. it's good at surviving persecution. It's 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 look. At, I mean, I'm really into China and missions in Asia, and uh, you know, the, the the growth of the Chinese church in my lifetime is a world shaking thing. It's in, terribly important, and uh, that happened because Christianity is very comfortable being on the receiving end of political persecution. So. And the thing is, because I'm British, um, I know, I, I, you know, I, I've, I very much feel the history of my country and um, that my country once had that renient, whatever the word was, um, it had that view of itself, the church has power, the church shapes culture, we're the head and not the tail. That was a big thing in my country, say 150 years ago, Victorian Christianity. And, uh, and of course we cocked up, the First World War was a great big debacle where we, we cocked up, we, we got aligned to empire and we, you know, with the failure of empire was the failure of the church. And a lot of Christians, a lot, most British people gave up on Christianity after the First World War. There was a huge loss of faith and there was certainly a loss of public profile. But some of it remained and wonderful things happened around the time of the Second World War. Um, but I've grown up with a church that is essentially in exile. And is, so we're like in the position of Nehemiah, um, sort of rebuilding the walls and trying to rebuild the temple. Um, so that's where we're at. Whereas the American church, what I see happening is the, the same process of exile. I see them making all the same mistakes that the British church made of having wealth, having power, all the things the Lord warned about. And uh, beneath all the ideological claptrap that gets talked, the, the public theology, what's actually going on is, is a, and um, a hubris, you know, a lot, um, a misuse and abuse of power um, and profile, which God always judges. And, and you yeah. know, look at the Russian church in the last hundred years. You know, Russian orthodoxy was so tied in with the Tsar and the empire, um, that, and you know, and, and just got completely thrown out by the Bolsheviks. And uh, and the orthodoxy survived because a lot of people remained firmly orthodox. And as soon as the um, USSR collapsed orthodoxy mushroomed and, and you know but again they're getting tied to putin so um orthodoxy i think has a structural problem with this 
being a task to power, but um, that's a very general comment, but that is my experience of its history. But um, I think the Catholic Church is actually more robust in that respect. It's quite good at standing up to power and being a power in its own right. Yeah. Um, but, um, anyway, I'm talking rather widely, but, um, but I, I'm also wary. I think that that tension the scriptures give us between pre-exile, post-exile church, um, the New Testament is, of course, in the exile position again, um, because Christianity is born into a Judaism of the exile, into the diaspora. So um, when Constantine happens, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think that was a necessary thing. If the kingdom is going to fill the world, it's got to take over politics eventually. Um, so I'm not totally prejudiced against the, you know, the other side in the current debates. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I want to be broad. I don't, I don't like Christians who say, yeah, yeah, we're into the Mennonites, we're into the Anabaptists, we're into the Celts, we're into everything marginal, small, you know, because that's healthy Christianity. I think it's very easy to be healthy if you don't have any responsibilities. And so, um, you know, the Calvinist in me, the Anglican in me, is willing to accept the fact that, no, political power and authority and cultural um, leverage is something that comes to Christianity, and it, it can't avoid it and pretend it's not going to happen if we do our job well we will end up with influence um, yeah. but, the, but the pattern from scripture that is i think god gave us these in the what the jews call the um, former prophets what we call the histories in the bible that what they give us is a model for church history that's how i've always taken it god's given us this model of Give, you know, him patiently enduring his people's idolatry until finally he loses patience and fight. And he's also given us two models of exile in the Old Testament. There's the, the exile of the northern kingdom, which is smashed forever, never restored, um, never really restored. You know, the ten tribes, it's just, that's it. Um, and then there's the model of exile, which is temporary, the model, this exile of the southern kingdom. And what I read in church history is some exiles are permanent and some exiles are temporary. And so if I look at my country or Russia in the last hundred years, I see that as more of the Southern Kingdom model, you know, that there's, there's enough there to be restored. So the temple is restored. Whereas others, like the French Revolution is a good example. The French church was so bad for so long that it's in its alignment with monarchy that it was just smashed. And there's never been a restoration of what was in place for a thousand years before the French Revolution. So thinking of it by nations, different nations have different, and Constantinople is another example of a, what I would call a Northern Kingdom exile where, you know, orthodoxy was just smashed because Byzantium was so corrupt for so long, God was very patient for all sorts of reasons, but in the end it was never reversed and, and it's, orthodoxy has remained, except in Russia, a religion of exile. So that's, yeah, I think you get the picture. Yeah, and I think what I'm hearing you saying, and it's interesting that you mentioned Islam, because I see that too, like, just from a sociological perspective, we need to recognize that religions have a different DNA. And Islam, it is uh, a religion that is designed to function with the state. And Christianity was born out of, you know, a time in Jewish history when they had no power. And so there really is no political theology, like there is no plan, because... Mm. Jews couldn't join the military anyways. They, they didn't have power. Mm. And so everybody can read their politics into the new, this is my perspective anyways. You, people will have, this is a hotly contested point, but mm. I don't see a strong plan for political theology in the New Testament, which is why it can, it can be applied to various things. But what we see is that when Christians don't have power and when they're persecuted, that fits very well. But when Christians get power, and especially if 
like there's different versions of Christianity. If, if it's a version of Christianity that has stewarded power and has workshopped that out, such as the Catholics, such as the Orthodox, you know, they have workshopped it out over centuries to where they kind of have a plan. But when it is one of these separatist groups that all their DNA and all their history has been, mm. you know, very pietistic and very personal and can we say kind of black and white and dogmatic? Mm. When those people take power, it isn't a good situation. No. And, and well, I'm now the, in my country, 350 years ago, we had the English Revolution, yeah. which was an example of that. The Calvinists had been a pilot for 100 years, persecuted, kicked around. So, I mean, once, you know, in, in Europe, the, the big Calvinist countries in Europe, at one point in Calvin's lifetime, were the, um, the French and the Hungarians. That's where Calvinism, those were the Calvinist lands. And, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine now, though um, it's, it's there in Hungarian history, but the, the exile of Calvinism from France, well, luckily it settled here and in Scotland. But, uh, yeah, that, there's that. Yeah, so I think I'm talking too much. I saw you checking your watch. No, no, no I'm just keeping track of time. It's not, uh, it wasn't an indication of that. The the pushback from Americans will be two things. One is to say, look, America was founded as a Christian nation, so we have to fight for... Was it? What? Yeah, this is the thing that confuses me. The whole point of the Constitution and everything the Founding Fathers did, they didn't... No one ever said we are a Christian nation. They, they, they had a determinedly secular view because Christianity had been so factious. They, the last thing they wanted was a religious foundation. That was the whole point of the foundation of the United States, is to secularize power. Yeah. And, um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, if you look at the actual religions of the Founding Fathers, very few of them were actively Trinitarian Christians. Um, so this idea we were founded as Christian nation is really confused, I think. And I think that people purposely draw, they, they create confusion by saying, the Puritan founders of the original uh, Plymouth Harbor settlement yeah. were exactly the same thing as the people that did the constitution. And that is historically not true. The yeah. Plymouth Harbor settlement didn't work because it was, they were trying, you know, it was too black and white and you can't create a theocracy that has such tight rules. And pretty soon you had the Salem witch trials, which was an attempt to try and, yeah you know, through authoritarian power, you know, keep people theologically in line. Well, the key point in the, the Constitution was a recognition that we can't run our country as a Christian nation. We need to run it broadly as a place where everybody has the right to express religion in their own way. And yeah. I think this is something that, that American evangelicals are very confused about. And yeah. that then leads into these culture wars of trying to force people to believe exactly as they do. Although yeah. that then gets hidden behind rhetoric about abortion because who can be opposed to killing babies? Oh my goodness. But, that, that gets thrown around all the time. It just It's like, look at communism. A lot of Americans uh, hate communism because they think it tried to do something good, but it did it wrong, you know? It's, it's trying to do the gospel in the flesh or whatever you want to say. And um, I'm studying Chinese communism at the minute. and. You know, the, the thing is, if Americans who look at communism, they say, well, it was trying to achieve good ideals, but in the wrong way. And by focusing obsessively on the state achieving this, lots of people died. Well, look at the abortion lobby in the United States. It's so unbalanced. It's just 
this this one thing, which is all emotively put as saving lives for the unborn, yeah, it's all turned into a huge piece of moral blackmail, which hides a multitude of other sins. You know, yes. it's like it's fine for us for a hundred thousand Iraqis to be killed because of the Bush administration's decision to invade Iraq. A hundred thousand Iraqis, including you know <laughs> how many tens of thousands of children and babies that's fine that's justifiable but you know the murder of american babies in american case oh no well that's that's the worst thing ever and um you know i i just the, the abortion argument really annoys me it annoys a lot of europeans because we just think you know either people are being you know it's like no one is saying that's not a valid moral point we're just saying it doesn't justify a lot at the moment it's being used by a lot of people to justify the undermining of american democracy right now you know yes, yes. That, thank you for saying that, that. One, yeah for that one reason for that you know as if th th that's turned into such an overwhelming argument that nothing else matters and i you know and i say to what about climate change you know if we're called to protect if we've got a godly calling a christian calling to protect the, those weaker than ourselves yeah that doesn't just apply to american babies yes it applies to american babies what about the planet you know yeah what about what about species that are going extinct that is not some flaky tree-hugging hippie agenda it's completely biblical and um you know, how many times does the Torah say, look after the animals, look after the land? God, the prophets actually say, I am throwing you out because you have neglected the land. Um, That's the, true. the Bible is very green, if you like, and uh, the green movement has just rediscovered biblical principles. So for, for the, the way that that gets dismissed by the right, I think, well, you're, you're so inconsistent. You just haven't thought this through at all. Yeah. And, and black Americans have shown me, I've been really educated about the abortion argument because they've shown me that, you know, a lot, because if you know, look at the black vote in the elections last week, you know, overwhelmingly um, Democrat, right? A lot of them are churchgoers. And um, so they, they, they understand all the principles of this, but, but what they're saying is they, they can see that it doesn't wash, that, you know, like my uh, black friend in Los Angeles pointed out to me during this year, she said, and she's not a passionate Democrat by any means, but she's, uh, she just says, um, you know, it was the Republicans were in power when Roe versus Wade happened, and nobody cared. The Southern Baptist Convention didn't care. There wasn't a great big moral outrage or protest movement from the right or from the religious conservatives. They were quite chilled about abortion as a law. Um, it was only, in, and, and they had repeated opportunities in the 70s, 80s to repeal it um, from the Supreme Court. Those weren't taken. That's what I noticed growing up. Yeah, I've watched each American election. Each election, this is thrown out there to sort of blackmail the Christian vote and yeah. say, you've got to vote right wing. But I thought, this is just hypocrisy. This is a cover for tax cuts. Wealthy people, I mean, Jesus was always about piercing through to the motives. And the motive here is, is, is wealthy people, their agenda is low taxes because it suits them. So they want an administration in that gives them low taxes. So let's come up with, and it, this is what she showed me in the late 80s under in the Reagan transition to the first Bush was that around that time, the Republicans came, somebody came up with a strategy. They thought, oh, look, let's, let's, let's start a crusade to save the unborn. Um, a crusade, again, and then we can blackmail the Christian vote for generations. And it worked brilliantly. And you, but the thing is, the Christians are very well-meaning. Jesus said, you know, the people of the light are often more discerning than the people of the darkness. Sorry, the people of the light are less discerning. And um, I see that with a lot of American Christians, wonderful, saintly, godly, lovely people. 
But when you get them on these issues, they're just stupid. They just they, and that's not a moral judgment. I mean, it sounds like one, but I, I'm just saying they're like witless geese. It's like the the the, the right just says vote for us because we'll save the unborn. They say, oh yes, yes, we must do that. And um, and the and true it, hypocrisy of that is Canada. If you compare Canada and the United States side by side, it's very similar demographics and very similar population in many ways. But there are 16 times more abortions per capita in the United States. And the big difference, we have zero regulations on abortions. You can do anything you want here. Yeah. Um, but the difference is we have free health care. So <laughs> a woman is looking at, at a birth and saying, I can go into the hospital and it's free. Afterwards, I can go on nine months of uh, maternal leave. And afterwards, I live in a country where, you know, there's help and there's support. Yeah. And depending on the province, there's, you know, very cheap health care and all these things. In the United States, it's ridiculously expensive. Yeah. You know, just the birth is like $10,000 and on and on. And that is completely Republicans that are pushing that. Yeah. And so if you actually cared about the widows and orphans, if you cared mm -hmm. about the widows and orphans, you would put things in place so that a woman is not facing this decision. I would like to have this child, but I can't afford to have this child. So I need to kill this child. There are women mm -hmm. right now that are making those decisions because of your Republican vote that somebody that blackmailed you into believing that you're saving the babies, but you're actually making it worse. But millions of intelligent Republicans in the States would hear you say all of that and would have masses of counter arguments. You see, I'm not, a, I'm not in America, you know, and I don't, I'm well, I very much appreciate subtle differences of nation and culture. So I'm aware that from the outside, I can't judge what's going on in the States because I'm not there. I don't vote for their, their leaders, you know, legislators or executives. And so, you know, but the problem is the American agenda. One thing I find on Facebook that amuses me is that, you know, we are being broadcast on the social media, even more than our media, we're being broadcast America's agenda. America is shouting in our faces, left and right, shouting, shouting. It's like you're standing in a room with two people shouting past you all the time, sometimes shouting at you. And then if I speak up and, and kind of say, well, how about this? Then most people generally on the right will shout me down, say, how dare you comment? You don't understand my country. You know, and <laughs> I just think, hang on a minute. I've just been shouted at 24 seven. I've just gently spoken up and suddenly I'm like, how dare I speak? I think it's like you're in the middle of I like feel like a child in the middle of a divorce, you know? Um, yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the thing is, I, I'm, I'm quite um, sanguine about the Trump situation because I think you know, I look back at Nixon. Trump, Nixon makes Trump look like a, an angel of democracy. Um, you know, Nixon was mo a monster. Johnson wasn't much better. Lincoln himself was no angel. You know, I think American democracy has actually got cleaner. So, yes, Trump is outrageous, but he's outrageous like a child. He's not. I don't think he's actually going to uh, destroy America. And also, I was reading Montesquieu because I'm very into. I'm studying. I'm writing papers on 18th century political theory at the moment. So. Montesquieu is a big uh, thing for me, and uh, and he's very foundational to the American Constitution. You know, he's one of the main sources um, for Hamilton and Madison and the team. And uh, Montesquieu says, um, you know, the, the beauty of the British system, he's talking about the British system, which became the American system. Um, constitutions are actually quite more similar than Americans like to say. And um, he says the beauty of this two-party system is that they, neither party has any power to change things, and that's why they hate each other with such inveterate hatred. <laughs> that's what I see in America, is that they, it's like, 
<laughs> and um, but you know that hasn't changed in my lifetime. It's just the same with every election. Mm. It's just Trump. Trump's a media personality. You know, he's a showman, and he's you know he likes being outrageous and provoking people. But I like the way Biden's handling it. I mean, because everyone's just ignoring Trump, just talking past him like a naughty child having a tantrum. They're just waiting for this. Because the point is, every, even lots of Republicans, they do trust facts. They believe there is a thing out there called reality and fact. And, that you know, I'm all for, even if it's more than usual, I'm all for taking it all through the courts because, you know, all the rational people who need evidence have the right to that evidence. If they've been told by their president that it's a steal and a coup, then fine, in this case, make an exception and make a huge fuss of checking, checking, checking. But at the end of the day, we're not frightened that the, <laughs> that the facts are going to go the other way. And everyone knows that. Trump's own team knows that. Mm -hmm. It may be Trump himself knows that. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is. But the, the Trump thing, ha it has exposed this huge cultural divide. You know, we've got American brothers and sisters we've been talking to for decades. And suddenly we're completely on different sides. It's like we were on we were on different boats that were together, and suddenly the boats have gone far apart. And we're thinking, hang on a minute, I thought we were on the same boat. And um, yes, the, the the anguish both both ways. But look, I'm very de into democracy, and um, you know, I wanted to respect the Brexit vote, for example. And um, if a majority goes for something and it's according according to the rules, you support it. Democracy matters, even if it goes against our liberal preferences. So. Um, I'm more Democrat than liberal, I discovered with Brexit. But, um, and so for, yeah, so I'm just saying, I, I agree with Biden that you've got to honor 70 million people for all sorts of reasons, preferred Trump. 70 million, you know, a good, very nearly half the electorate and a third, of, more, well, a quarter of the country, a lot more than a third of the country. So a lot of people. So, um, no, how do I get onto your boat? my boat no well, you're like you're talking about two boats together and, and they're moving off and i i've kind of been on the american boat and i would like to find some sort of reasonable you know european evangelicals that are not you know all these things angry and culture wars and divisive and bombastic yeah. and shoot first and ask questions later and like well, how, you're, how you're I, I thought that, i thought canadians were like that i thought being we just Canadian don't have like I think our temp our temperament mostly is, although depending on, I do find um, Canadian evangelicals can tend to mirror American evangelicals, just because yeah, that's the media that, that we consume. But I mean, may maybe all I'm asking for is, could you give me a list of kind of some some great European uh, pastors or somebody to listen to so that I can you know, tune yeah. into your channel instead of turning into the American channel, because Canada doesn't well, have the biomass to create um, a lot of great, I mean, there are some great examples, but we don't have a, like a huge theological or musical community. Yeah. Well, a fascinating word you used there was pastors. Now, you said, do you know any really good pastors I can read? Yeah. Now, that's a very North American question, because, you know, for me, evangelicalism is limited by the, like, I'm very into the fivefold ministry or the fourfold ministry of Ephesians, you know, and because um, I've come from a lot of charismatic circles. And I think actually that is just God's plan for the church and it has been right through church history. So the way I see it is that there is a sort of hierarchy that the, in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, Paul talks about, apost first of all, apostles, yeah? Second, prophets, third, evangelists, 
and their pastors and teachers. And in the oh. Corinthians, in the Corinthians list, he says something similar, but he just talks about the apostles, prophets, and evangelists. He calls them wonder workers, but um, because of course evangelists were wonder workers. Um, but John Stott pointed out quite correctly that it's not really a fivefold ministry; it's a fourfold ministry. Because if you look at the grammar of the sentence, Paul is not saying pastors and teachers as two separate categories; they're two faces of the same ministry. So, if you take those five as a sort of hierarchy, those four as a hierarchy, the apostles first, then the prophets, then the evangelists, and he's very clear about that, that um, list. He says first, second, third in Ephesians and um, Corinthians. The, the pastor and teacher role is very low. It's a local role, you know? It's the most basic role. It's the one the laity, the first level the laity are looking at is the pastor teacher, yeah? And for me, the evangelical movement for the last 250 years since its birth in the um, First Great Awakening and the transatlantic revival of Wesley and Whitfield's time, that's when I think evangelical, and, and Jonathan Edwards just before, that's when evangelicalism began. Um, that it's, it's limiting ecclesiologically the church so that what about the top flight in the New Testament, the apostles and prophets, a big deal. Um, apostles, prophets, apostles, prophets, that, that's the itinerant group. That The evangelist is a sort of branch of them. They're the itinerant people who move around. Um, there are apostolic teachers, like look at Origin in the early church, you have a sort of inter, you know, a teaching role for the whole church um, and to tell you to some extent. Um, these key people get raised up in church history, but evangelicalism for me tends to, it puts its ceiling at the evangelist. So the evangelist is the top gift. And I've noticed that in the history, if you look at Calvin's ecclesiology, I see this in Calvin's Institutes book four, he reduces pragmatically for the situation he's in, Calvin reduces his ecclesiology. He does an exegesis of the passages I'm talking about, Ephesians 4, Corinthians 12, and he, he Calvin reduces it and just say, well, basically the prophet is the teacher you know, and, and so on. And, and he's reducing the church because he said, I would read Calvin myself as a sort of apostolic teacher, a sort of apostolic, apostolic prophetic kind of level person, rather, rather like one of the church fathers, somebody who's founding Christianity at a foundational level, um, refounding it. And uh, Luther, I would read as a prophet, you know, and um, so, and if Wesley and Whitfield as evangelists, essentially, um, so what I'm saying is that when you said read pastors, I thought that's the whole problem is that we're thinking at a very low operational level. What you need is strategic thinking and the strategic thinking in the kingdom comes from people with a more of an apostolic or prophetic gift. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so what you're saying is, and I have noticed this, even how, how you talk, you're, you're talking about reading great literature and you're talking about, um, you know, even writing papers. And I've noticed this with, with Europeans that Europeans will talk in a way that only kind of the doctorate people will talk over. Well, actually, do you have a doctorate or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but like there, there is kind of this anti, this nascent anti-intellectualism over here where we kind of feel like, well, and this was kind of explicit in the 1920s and thirties that with the, the fundamentalist modernist movement that the fundamentalists turned away from academia and said, Look, yeah. all we need is the Bible. All we need is, you know, and then kind of mixed with charismatic thinking that like, well, just me and the Bible and Jesus is going to speak to me through the Bible. Yeah. And then I'm going to preach that gospel and people are going to get saved. And it's kind of like, well, okay, that's great. Great results. 
but then you put that person in the role of leading the whole church and he doesn't have that anchoring and he, yeah. he hasn't been to university to kind of expand his mind, understand history, historical yeah, contexts and, yeah. and all these things. And so we're just kind of unhinged. We have all these charismatic um, and, it, and it spins off all these cult type movements because yeah. you have, like if you have the bombastic personality, the charisma, uh, not in a spiritual gift sense, but in the sense of just a charismatic person, you can create a church. And in America, you can create a whole denomination of churches mm. and you can start satellite churches now with technology. And all of a sudden you're, you're a Mark Driscoll where, you know, he just recently got his master's, but he didn't establish everything yeah. with a master's. He just, well, the thing is, he was good looking. He was eloquent. You know, he was, yeah. the thing is that the, the trap, in the United States that ruins Christian ministries again and again and again um, is this celebrity thing is that you know they start so John MacArthur to me that's how I read him he's just got totally out of his depth he's got millions of people listening to him he's just not qualified he just hasn't done the work um, and you know I, the thing with with our Tom Wright is that you know he has done the work he's but Tom Wright is a hero for me because he has battled against a very snooty liberal academic establishment. You know, Tom Wright's battle in his life wasn't against these trivial evangelical voices who will be, you know, in a hundred years, no one's gonna remember most of his opponents. Um, they, they, he's, they're not, I mean, you know, they'll, they'll come and they'll go. But um, the thing is, um, he's battled against, his, the battle of Tom Wright's life was a prophetic battle to take back to the stronghold of academia, was to fight for evangelical, which I would just say orthodox Christianity in the academic world. And he's heroically fought that battle. And he's been, and so for him, these recent debates where his own, as he says, my own, my own colleagues, my peers in the reformed world are my main enemies. Um, the, that, that for him, that's just small potatoes. I mean, he's quite, the thing is, he's a bit like the early St. Paul, I think, he, he's, or Athanasius, is that he's, he's a street fighter. He's had to fight, fight, fight against the most demonic strongholds. Um, and so he, he's better at fighting than he is at making friends. And so, that, you know, not many people have both gifts. Um, yeah. And I was saying this to a friend in, the other day about presidents in the States, is that if, is this okay? You're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm just um, going to put my location slightly. Okay. Um, like you know, the, the problem is, you know, can I jump back to American politics for a moment? Say that again. Can I jump back to American politics for a moment? Is that you know that nice people aren't always suitable to executive roles? So, our Winston Churchill was not a nice person, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know he, he had a lot of views we would now consider racist. Um, he was very into the British Empire. You know, Churchill was not a, your, your liberal at all. <laughs> yeah, but he was the right man to deal with someone like Hitler. Yeah, and um, and so it's horses for courses. The nice, like the guy before him that was such a failure, Chamberlain was was a nice guy, but he wasn't um, he wasn't suited. To the situation and so when in, I would upset my liberal friends because I don't just have liberal friends but I, I would upset liberal friends I say well actually I think Trump when you're dealing with something like the Chinese the Chinese Communist Party um, who I think are a really wicked regime um, and some forms of Islamism well Islamism Islam and China you know a, a hawkish Trumpish kind of approach is really suitable yeah. and 
you don't you don't you know you don't throw flowers at evil regimes you need to they need to be confronted with confrontation um and the problem with liberals is they're too then they're good at making friends but not good at dealing with enemies so i've always thought it's a balance you know in foreign policy um and to some extent even in domestic policy I've, I've never said that trump's wrong about everything but it's just his the whole thing for me about this election was it was a referendum on his personality the whole point of a president is you are voting for a person and the what i mean the, the, that's been the frustrating thing for us looking on over this side is we just think every almost everyone here just thinks how how is this even a question you know his personality is not suited to the role it's it's a quirk of history that he managed to get in and they've got, he just has to go whatever your political affiliation just as a moral issue as an issue of character yeah um, but all this nonsense has got thrown into the mix um and I would agree with your horses for courses um, critique. Like if we were in the middle of World War III, Trump might be the person to lead to victory. No, that's but my American American Christians have cast things, you know, ratcheting abortion up to such a level. And then when you mix in QAnon theory, which I don't know if we want to talk about that, but you yeah. know, people feel as though they are in the middle of world war three and i like serious people have said if trump loses it's the end of democracy and people yeah. really feel like they're in and i think that people have intentionally misrepresented the facts to that level and now you know all this fury is being unleashed not on you know muslim extreme you know extremism overseas and not on china but on the american people yeah. And not only by Trump, but by Trump supporters and by American Christians against other American Christians. When I, I know, but I, as I said to you in private messages, I think QAnon is actually, I'm quite positive about it because I think um, it's actually siphoning off a lot of the nutters. It's showing where people's hearts lay because the problem has been mixed, hasn't it? It's been mixing salt and fresh water for so long yeah. that the power, this always happens with power. It's not personal to America or to the 20th or 21st century at all. Um, but what you get, and my, my country had a horrible mixture of genuine Christianity and all sorts of idolatry going on in Victorian times up to the First World War. And um, the good thing about exile, the good thing about losing your power is it cleans you. It's a cleansing process. And that's what's happened to the Church of Britain, um, is that we've been cleansed. Um, and I think we've come together and a lot of the nonsense is gone. Um, we're in a better position to handle power, ironically, now we haven't got any. Um, yeah. I think with QAnon, that's, it'll come and go. Everything in America comes and goes. It's very ephemeral. Look at the Tea Party movement. I mean, the thing is, um, QAnon is just another piece of lunacy, which will come and it will go. It's, it's largely, a, a lot of Americans I've learned, they live in the present, you know, it's quite like um, Stalinist Russia. They, they're living very much in this week's news and this week's news is the only thing that exists. And what happened last week barely exists, let alone last year or 20 years ago. And the centuries before America just don't exist at all. And no. so, you know, the, 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 their ontology is, is their phenomenology is really limited um, because of the pressure of 24-7 news. Um, so, you know, I think QAnon, it's a symptom, you know, so there's a lot of people feeling democratically disenfranchised, disappointed with the result. In our country, I mean, you know, when, we're, when, when you vote for a party in my country and you're disappointed with the result, you don't start a new religion. Um, yeah. 
So, and I think QAnon's good because it's so obviously sort of sect, it's so obviously cult-like and sect-like that Christians will have to choose. They'll have to say, okay, am I basically going to stay rooted in orthodoxy, or am I going to go off in, in, in into a cult? And I think that's quite a helpful choice when you've already got a yeah. very pre present forms of idolatry of the flag and of money and so on and so forth. If you've got these idolatries going on, which has always happened in Christian history, it's nothing new. Um, then it's better to be forced to choose. Like a good example from my imperial history in Britain, I'm always comparing Victorian Britain to America today, is that look at um, what happened with British Israel. We had a whole new sect called British Israel who genuinely believed that they were so nationalist, yeah, that sane, intelligent people believed that um, it was some sort, it was a bit like the Mormons, there was some sort of idea that the exiled Northern Kingdom had ended up in. Britain and that Britain was that all the biblical prophecies about Israel applied to the United to United Kingdom. Yeah, that's yeah. Familiar. it's tiny, it's historical. There's only a, a handful left now, but at the height of the empire, that was a sort of sect. Yeah, and there were people in influence, people in Parliament um, listening to this. So that's a good example. You know, it's 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 a it's totally a political product. It's people who've lost their way, aren't anchored in Christ. And in a way, it does you a favor because it so obviously becomes something other than Christian. I think the most toxic thing is when you've got people preaching Christian orthodoxy and worshiping idols. That's much more, much more of a grievous thing. I'd rather people choose. Um, like I, I'm, what I'm expressing is a bit like um, Christ says in to the La Laodiceans in Revelations. He says, "I'd rather you either hot or cold, <laughs> not lukewarm." You know, and in other words, I'd rather you were just completely evil than half evil because it's, it's you know, people who represent, because of the authority of Christ, if people represent Christ and sin, they do much more harm than those who don't represent Christ. So it's better just to walk away from Christ than to stay with him and worship idols and, you know, damage the world. And what I said to you in, in private message before is it just hurts and like it's hard to like every it feels like every week there's another one that i real i realize from their comments oh you you've been bitten by the QAnon bug as well so maybe maybe you're not saying QAnon, but i can tell you know like there's a coming yes. storm or you know and they believe that there's concentration camps being built in canada and i'm like what like, <laughs> can, can I give you an example from patristics as an illustration? Yeah. Right? Um, Irenaeus is, is a wonderful man, you know, one of these apostolic level pastors and teachers. He's working in Gaul, um, in southern Gaul, yeah? And uh, he's, but he's from Syria, or well, no, he's from, where was it? He's from way over to the east. Lovely guy, Irenaeus. And, um, He's dealing with the Valentinian sect, and he's frustrated because some of his best friends are going over to the Valentinians, yeah? Now, the Valentinian, we now know from the discoveries in the last hundred years that Irenaeus' account of the Gnostics is very accurate, and that Valentinians were indeed teaching what he said they were teaching. We weren't sure until the, the stuff was discovered. I um, can't remember which dig it was for the Gnostics, but... Um, and. Uh, so a lot of sensible, intelligent people, friends of Irenaeus, were going over to the Valentinians, yeah? Now, when we look at it written down, the Valentinians say, what? This is science fiction, you know? Um, this is bizarre. Um, it's like Mormonism on speed, you know, it, it's crazy. Um, and yet, 
people went over to it. Why? Well, obviously there were pressures on them. And I think a key factor that a lot of the church fathers don't quite put, I think Tertullian hinted it, is that people would take, so I'm making a comparison between the Valentinian Gnostics and QAnon. And I'm just saying, people get, Christians get sucked out of all the, every generation, there's something like this, every generation, in every nation. Um, these things are not new, and um, you get sucked off, Christians get sucked out of churches into some sort of cult, some sort of sect, some sort of, it's nothing new, and uh, and the, the enemy will, will sow these tears again and again and again, so, you know, it's a test of hearts, I don't think it's always a bad thing, because um, pe people need their hearts tested. Because th this idea that there's a, every Christian group, every country, they always say, oh, well, there's this, there was this perfect period when everything was just hunky-dory, when everything was just under the kingdom of Christ. This is, a, this is an illusion, you know. <laughs> that's, not the age, that's not the age we're in at all. There has never been a golden age in church history, no. including the first century, you know. Yes, and I would agree uh, with that. Yeah, we, if you'd ask St. Paul, if he'd found out that 17th century Christians were all saying, yeah, yeah, we want to go back to the New Testament times, and Paul would have said, no, I, he said, I'm so depressed to hear that because I want the church to grow. I want yeah. the church to, you know, um, my mother it, it was a, trained as a vicar, and she's, um, she said the early church was like, a, a, if you watch a giraffe after it's born, you know, wobbling on its legs trying to stand up. She said that the first century church was very wobbly. Of course, we get the best scriptures, you know, the actual, but the actual reality of what was going on on the ground was really wobbly, really very, in, very vulnerable and um, like a bird learning to fly. And, you know, the, the God, would, God wanted the church to grow in strength and confidence. Mm -hmm. But I think the answer to what you're saying is, is two things. I think the, Christ keeps comparing the kingdom, the church to a tree, doesn't it? Yeah, like in Matthew 13, central example, but Paul talks about the olive olive branch and, you know, the, the metaphor of the kingdom of the church as a tree and as a bush, as a, you know, as a vine. It's just throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. And um, I would say, you know, if you're caught on one little, your bit in, of Canada is just one tiny little twig on one branch of one, you know, of this massive tree. And the thing that all Christians need is two things. They need to look down from where they're at, down the branch to the where it where their branch is divided, and then down to the division below that. They need to look down into the the historical Christianity, get rooted. Christianity is has massive roots. God has been at work for two thousand years, doing wonder after wonder in every generation. Invest in that. I mean, that's what Patristics for Protestants is, isn't it? It's Protestants looking down into the roots of Christianity, but also I would say not just look down, but look out, look across. So I get hugely encouraged by looking at Christians in China, Christians in Sudan, Christians in Africa, Christians in, you know, all over the world. Um, the church is busy growing heroically um, under persecution or not all over the planet. So you're not alone. And I think the American church is so insular and it's a very dangerous place yeah. to have to have all that wealth combined with such ignorance and such insularity. Um, when Trump said, make America great again, I thought what he really means is make America small again. And that's not a criticism. That, and in a way, by avoiding war, that's what he's beginning to do. He's saying, 
you know what, we're not fit to be a world leader. Let's go back to being a small insular nation that's good at you know, managing its own resources, like it was before Theodore Roosevelt or whatever. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, the States has, has done a great job of trying to be the global policeman and sometimes has been a source of great good to the gospel as a result. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it, it's, you know, it's not a nation well suited to a global leadership role. Hmm. Um, because it's 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 so insular, um, and the, as you say, the anti-intellectual thing. It's hard for Europeans to grasp that. It's hard for us to. Americans talk loud, you know, but it's hard for us to grasp that actually the ceiling's really low, and a lot of people just don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I do. It, it is a problem between British and American. Is that I'm typically British in that I can sound rather snooty and dismissive. Um, and I, I'm, I'm aware of that, and that's not a healthy thing, because I, I want to honor and respect what's good in America, you know, and it's many good gifts and what it's, and I think in a way, the best way for foreigners like me to defuse the current hysteria is to say these things, is to be affirming, and to say, you know, I love the United States, let's look at Washington, let's look at Lincoln, <laughs> let's look at the stuff we can all agree on, isn't this a wonderful, what a wonderful experiment, you know, look at all it's achieved, and um, I think that sort of that stuff needs affirming. Biden's hinted at it, mm -hmm. but you see, every politician talks the language of unity when they've just been um, elected. The question is whether they follow through, um, yeah. and whether they're allowed to follow through because there'll be pressures on Biden to be terribly sectarian. You know, all the people who just want Trump dead will be pushing, 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 and he's got to resist that. Um, he's got to. Um, because, for example, example, I, I, you know, Trump probably will end up in jail if he, if the president, you know, allows it to, things to run their course, yeah, because he's probably committed, you know, federal level felonies, um, you know, they're endlessly listed online. I don't know how much of it's really true in court, but, for example, as Nixon, right, was pardoned by um, Ford, yeah, Nixon should have gone to jail. He was pardoned. I think Biden, I hope what he'll do is once they've, he's in the White House and they've got Trump out, um, they're trying to find sort of sweeties to tempt him out of the White House at the minute. But um, like his, his, his original design for, for creating a competitive network to Fox News, I think that's the best way to tempt him out is another way to be influential. Um, I'll, I can come back to that, but um, I don't know how much time you have. But so what's Biden's of authority. I want Biden to be magnanimous. I want him to forgive yeah. Trump because to honor, not because Trump deserves it, but because the 70 million Trump voters deserve it. Mm -hmm. it. It would be so divisive. You see, Trump has generated such a horrible, you know, divisive, acerbic situation. And the whole nation, I've watched America for five years. I say five because the nomination is when it began. It, for five years, America has been sucked in, left and right have been sucked in because he is structurally in charge of the country. And so his way of tweeting and his way of dealing with people has affected everyone like a disease. And that has to be pulled out. And the left has a role in that. You see, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations this year have been Trump, it's just been anti-Trump, but it's been, it's been, you know, just as bad as Trump because it's all division, attack, judging uh, everybody else is, is morally evil. That's not helpful because it's basically they're all turned into Manichaeans, you know, this, the, set, the cult that Augustine came through. They, that's a heresy. You know, the, the other side is not morally evil. The universe is not in two poles. So um, I just, I want to see things calmed down, really. We're, yeah. very, we're very concerned over here. Um, 
because but I, I don't I've got more to say about Trump if you've got the time I don't know how long we have well I have all the time in the world uh, you had said you needed to leave at noon your time how are you doing for for 15 well, my partner's finished her, I think I've heard her voice so I think she's finished her work um, so I need to go and check with her but um can I just go and check for sure yeah are you able to pause Right. There's a pause button here. I'm going to press it. Okay. Press it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, do you want to talk about Christianity? Do you want to talk about politics? <laughs> uh, well, when we're talking about America, it's hard to divide the two, isn't it? Indeed. Well, that's, the, that's the whole problem. Um, the, my theory about Trump is that he didn't want the presidency. I think Trump, I buy before. Um, the book Fire and Fury came out, I already bought this story that I think his motive was he wanted just the nomination. Um, I think he, he's, his intent, he thought he was a dead cert that Hillary would win. We all did. So I think he, um, despite her being a woman, yeah, I thought America would finally embrace female leadership. Unfortunately, it was the wrong woman, but um, that I think Trump wanted, to, his plan was to create an alternative to Fox News. I think he wants to create a more right-wing, less moderate version of Fox News. Um, he wants a media empire. I think that was his plan. And I think he went for the nomination purely to generate, uh, he'd seen with The Apprentice that he got, you know, the national profile, and he wanted to massively supercharge that profile, get a massive following, get lots of addresses and and I think he wanted to set up this media network. I think that was his plan. And I think it backfired because he won. I don't think he intended to win. I don't think he wanted the presidency. Um, and he spent that last four years improvising. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, he's, a, he's just a businessman. But as time's gone on, I've thought I blamed him less. And I blamed his Christian voters more. Um, <laughs> I thought less than, I thought at the end of the day, yes, he's not a nice person, but he's not the worst of the worst. I mean, he's, he's at least he's openly awful. Um, you know, he's better, better than someone who smiles and smiles and is a villain. And those happen a lot in politics. Um, look at our Tony Blair. Tony Blair was, I, I thought Tony Blair was the best thing ever in, in, you know, in 1997. And, you know, it turns out that the, he was just a really good actor. He was a really good presenter, but he had no idea what he was doing when he came into power. You know, he was improvising all the way through. He was just a tart, really, a media tart. Um, but it worked. And um, New Labour did a lot of good in this country, but also, uh, you know, did some silly things. And um, what I'm saying is the example is Blair was charming. He was effective. We liked him. Yeah. But behind the scenes, there was a lot of stuff going on that we didn't know about, yeah? Well, at least Trump's in your face. At least Trump's openly, you know, he's not, he, he, his corruption's there in, it, absolutely on the surface. And so I think, you know, that's kind, kind of quite endearing. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the thing is, yeah, I, I see him as the victim of his electorate. You know, he, he, an awful lot of things are swimming around with him. People want it. It's similar, similar things happen to Nixon, I think. It, he, people want Trump to be this and they want him to be that. And he's, you know what? He's a really good, faithful politician because he's damn well giving them what they want. They want That's influence true. in the Supreme Court. He's given them influence in the Supreme Court. They want to withdraw from involvement in foreign wars. He's withdrawn from foreign wars. You know, I think Trump has actually faithfully delivered his program. And uh, I don't like the program, but he has, he's a very effective politician. He's very good at getting elected. He's a brilliant campaigner. 
Um, I, I think, you know, the verdict of history in 2016 is it was genius. It was absolute genius political campaigning. He's, you know, and 70 million people, even after all the mistakes in the last four years, 70 million Americans still wanted him, still preferred him. Yeah. Um, and also, to I'd say another thing that will outrage my your liberal sentiments is that, um, you know, I thought he deserved this election in the sense that if you looked at the campaigns, just as politics, just as politics, um, Biden was dreadful. Biden was so lackluster. So he just looked like a tired, muddled old grandpa. And in any normal election, he just would have lost. And if it wasn't for COVID, it's very clear Trump would have won. So um, Trump's a very effective politician, rather by accident. Um, he's just not a nice person. But at least, he's, as, I, as I keep going back to his unpleasantness, is at least blatant. Um, it's not hidden. It's not hypocritical. Um, you know, it's, it's there in front of you. And, and you can appraise it on its merits. But I want him out, of course I do, he's a lunatic. Yeah, and I actually agree with everything that you've said as far as he gives the people what they wanted. Yeah. Another thing that they've wanted, um, there's a book called Jesus and John Wayne that I just recently read about yeah. the history yeah. of, and it's a very good historical book. It's the sort of book that after every paragraph, there's a footnote. Like it's, it's very, it's, mm. it's readable, but it's a serious book. And it talks about how, because evangelicals said, well, I held my nose and voted for him in 2016. Yeah. But what she lays out is actually evangelicalism has been pushing towards this John Wayne type. I mean, like the Mark Driscoll, like the in your yeah. face, like they've been looking for a macho man. They've been looking for somebody. Yeah. Crass. They've been looking for somebody crass. Yeah. Because that is the DNA of evangelicalism really since, like you mentioned, the revival meetings and, and the, the Methodist uh, circuit rider preachers, like that is at the heart of, of evangelical American Christianity, and that is yeah. what we've been looking for. But it's what the psychologists call an archetype. The, the, yeah. Trump, Trump matches the. You know, I have a theory about that. Shall, shall I continue? Uh, you were mid well, Let me then. finish my thought. Is just and then and then go ahead. Is that like this is what we've been wanting, but it's killing democracy. Because I am equally concerned about fanaticism on the left, and there are some yeah. very concerning things. So am I. But, like, we have just gotten so distracted by Trump that, like, for myself, like, I'm normally kind of raising awareness and, and trying to raise the education level of people, and all I've had the capacity to say is, look, guys, stop worshipping Trump. When what I would have liked to have said is something like, you need to be aware of the sneaking power of authoritarianism on the left and, yeah. you know, neo-Marxist ideas and, and thought policing on the left. But I can't say that because there's QAnon that's telling people they're going to go to a concentration camp if they say the wrong thing. And uh, it, it, like, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And, and we need to have this coming together in the middle where we, we do disagree, yes. but we're back and forth as like both sides believe the uh, the best of the other side yeah. and we both believe that there's decent human beings and I was yeah it's all gotten blown out of proportion and anti-intellectualism and this bombastic yeah. you know this worship celebrity celebrity yeah. personality thing is just well i was encouraged by chomsky you know the jewish intellectual he, he's uh 
during the well, five, four years ago when Trump had won. And Trump, Trump was asked, is this the 1930s? You know, because the outraged liberal establishment was thinking, oh, no, we're back to the 1930s. It's Hitler. And, um, and Chomsky, I always found that reassuring because he knows his stuff. And he said, he said, no, it's not nearly as bad as that. <laughs> you know, it's the same dynamic of, you know, the left and the right falling out. So everything's polarized and everyone's got to be one side or the other. And there's nothing in the middle. The same dynamic as the 30s, but not on anywhere near the same scale or the same depth or the same danger um, as it was then. And actually, you know, Americans have short memories. If you look at the 50s um, with McCarthyism, quite similar things going on there, quite a scary time, um, the Vietnam War and so on. The, the, you know, the, and, and America loves to have an enemy. You know, the polarization is not just within the country, it's often focused outside the country. So we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And so if the Russians aren't available anymore, well, let's go for the Muslims. And so, you know, Saddam Hussein was a splendid candidate to be a new kind of Manichaean opposite to America um, in the, the first Gulf War. Um, and, uh, and the second, and, you know, the, and, and then it was bin Laden and, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's always a candidate to be the guy outside America that America is opposed to. And now America's just turned inward. But the, the, the pattern is this need to project, this need to, that evil is somewhere else. It's not in me. And uh, yeah, but the beauty of American Christianity at its best is that it gets that and it, it overcomes that and it stops saying you're the bad guy, I'm the good guy. It's, it's um, yeah, it's something in their culture. It's not just their religion, it's not just their politics, it's everything is polarized, you know, yeah. and, uh, in public discourse. But Canada's not like that. Canada's got a great reasonableness. As long as we don't listen to American religion too much, but, you know, your Trudeau worries me because I, I find yeah. him a, a revoltingly narcissistic, self-satisfied, self smug liberal, you know, constantly virtue signaling. I mean, Obama had that in him, but Trudeau is much worse. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm such a saint. I worship the planet. I'm going to, you know, he's, he's revolting. But, I mean, it's just irritating. But, I mean, it's the opposite to Trump, isn't it? Trump's the other side. Um, and the thing is, the Democrats have got it in them to be just as awful as Trump in their own way. Um, I, I, th I liked it when Chomsky said, you know, both um, American political parties are well to the right of the population, that most Americans just aren't as right wing as either of those parties. Um, and I mean, Chomsky would say that because he's very left wing, but I think he may have a point. I think Americans are constantly, you know, the, the, the comparison with my country is, that the, our conservative party are actually quite like your Democrat, that, sorry, not your Democrats, American Democrats. The Democratic Party, if you look at their actual policy base, policy platform, our conservative party is, well, it's changed a bit, but it was quite like um, the Democrats. Whereas the Republicans are like our UKIP, you know, they're, they're a sort of um, more extreme thing. Um, and um, the, the, basically, we don't have anything like the Republican Party. But if you imagine my country where there's no Labour Party, no Liberal Democrats, there's just the Conservatives and something even more right-wing than the Conservatives, it's a bit like that in the States. There's no choice. And uh, people are compromising endlessly. Most Americans I've spoken to, if they're not politically minded, they just their whole, whole philosophy is just to weaken government, which is very American. It's what the Constitution's for. You know, that, so if, there's a, if they've got a Democrat president, then they want to have Republican Congress. You know, they want to constantly thwart government so no one can remove their liberties, and that's very healthy. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
But um, yeah, I, I think Trump will blow over. I do. I think, you know, if you look at, I keep going back to 50 years ago. Um, Nixon was an appalling character in an appalling time, and the stakes were very high. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy, um, as well as Martin Luther King that year of the election, um, and the, the deepening involvement of Vietnam, America was in a much worse place, I think, then than it is now. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just, you know, not get too caught up in the hysteria. Mm. Because in a way, it's all nationalism, all this kind of apocalyptic stuff from left and right in the States is, it's all nationalism, because it's like America is all there is. America is the only thing that exists. The whole universe is just America and its politics. And yeah. I think the healthy thing that, that Christianity can offer to people caught up in that is the monastic principle of withdrawal, you know, <laughs> of just, get your head away, switch off the bloody television. I mean, I lived in, uh, I interact a lot with Zimbabweans. I've been very involved with South Africa and Zimbabwe over the years, never been there, but with people from there. Um, I was on a group that was discussing, you know, what to happen after Mugabe and the ZANU-PF have lost power. Um, and um, a sort of post-revolutionary group uh, in Zimbabwe. And, you know, and yet these white Zimbabweans on this group, they were going and playing golf, they were watching television, they were chilling out, you know, um, and and yet they were also saying, look, our situation's terribly vulnerable, we need a revolution. And I was thinking, well, what do you actually want? And I, I said to them, throw the television in the backyard, you know. <laughs> if you're serious about the changes you say you want, then withdraw from all that nonsense, all that propaganda, and get on with the job. And uh, a lot of Americans uh, just need to switch off the television. It's really that simple. Mm. Uh, and and just, just tone it down. They're all aware something's wrong. A lot of people on the right are going over to this thing called MeWe. Um, they're suddenly saying Facebook is full of liberals, which it is. So let's, um, let's move out to a more right-wing version of Facebook. <laughs> and this is, of course, the last thing the States needs. Yeah. Um, but it's economically healthy because of the current monopolies. So, um, it, yeah, but it won't do any good. But I think, yeah, people, I, I, I've always felt Americans need to get off the screens and read some damn books. I already yeah. think you just learn some history, get, get some content in your head. Um, even with Patristics for Protestants, I felt the Lord sometimes just touching my conscience and saying, stop interacting online and actually do some research, you know, keep, keep digging, to keep digging your foundations of what you yourself understand. Because um, there's only so much you can learn from dialogue. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you're, you're, I'm sad that you as a Canadian are so sucked into the American psychosis because, you know, it, you, your country has its own traditions and its own independent identity. And it, yeah. sounds to me like, it sounds to me like you don't have any strong sense of roots in that identity. That would be accurate, yeah. And I, that is partially my own choice. Um, at a certain point, you know, I was taking a master's and somewhere halfway through that, and I deeply regret this now, but I kind of, it was all getting so confusing. We were studying Karl Barth and continental theology and different things, and oh. I said, I just need to go back to the basics. And I started um, getting really interested in the young restless and reform movement in the States and Mark Driscoll and, and John Piper. Yeah. And, and then I was reading Luther and Calvin and Augustine, which there's nothing wrong with them, but we've moved on in the last couple hundred years. Right. And so I have, and I, 
I was part of a movement of people that did this, right? Like it wasn't just me, but like, and I did kind of limit myself and now I'm kind of like, I created my own world. Uh, and now I wish that I hadn't. Uh, and I'm also trying to figure out how to, uh, undo some of that. And, and I think what you're saying is like, I need to get people like me need to get a, a more historical and a more global perspective. Um, yes, back to this one more academic yeah. wait for some of this yeah. to blow over which i'm already seeing the some of the tensions are already coming down and yeah just let the purge happen i've i'm somebody that <laughs> wanna, i, I want to <laughs> say stop don't do it you know come back you know don't but maybe i just need to let people do what they're gonna do um yeah. and and just be faithful have kind of a monastic uh, yeah. about what I'm doing and just let people do what they're going to do. I, I'm, my mind is, I, I as a personality love to explore the alien. I love to get my head around something very different from what I know. Something old, something abstruse, like, you know, I'm writing papers on Immanuel Kant, a very difficult German philosopher in the 18th century. That's a famously difficult um, author and I love it and digging into Augustine and digging into anything old, abstruse in foreign languages. And so for me, America has just been an interest in the last few years since I discovered Facebook. I've made all these friends abroad. And for me, I'm fascinated because I want to understand how they're coming, where they're coming from and getting to know the American psyche and the American mind without ever having been there. Um, is, is uh, For me, it's just so interesting. I'm enjoying learning. Um, like there was on Patricia's process in a sub thread, you were, there was a guy called who was, um, an American on there and he was being quite bullish with you and saying, well, it's my thread and I'll say what I want. And so I, this was months ago and I said to him, well, actually it's my forum. So I, you know, do you remember? I remember. And by, because I'm not very good at technology, I accidentally friended him and, um, <laughs> we became Facebook. We became Facebook friends. Yeah. Now he's your classic American, you know, yeah. guy about my age, bodybuilder, um, lives in Florida. He's a real estate salesman, and it's been absolutely fascinating for me. Often I've thought of defriending him because we don't get on at all. But um, but for me, I'm I, I'm mentioning him because I presume no one listening to this will know who I'm talking about. Um, that he's fascinating for me because he's, I, I want to understand Trump voters and he is a Trump voter and he's died. He's not going to vote. He will never vote for the other party. You know, he will always vote for a public candidate and uh, his, his, his interracial marriage. And, and, you know, he's, he's I'm fascinated because he's so alien and weird to me. Um, and did every time we try to talk against, about Did you say he's against interracial marriage? No, he's, he has an interracial oh, marriage. Okay. Yeah. But like when Black Lives Matter and, the, and George Floyd and the riots took off earlier this year, I was talking to him about it and he said, well, my wife says she's never had a problem with racism. <laughs> I thought, right, well, bully for her, but what about the other 30 million? You know, I could not believe how individualistic his perspective was. It was like, I'm all right, Jack, is his whole faith. And uh, when I talked to him on issues of faith, he's lovely. He's got this beautiful heart really lovely view of Jesus and a beautiful faith, but you get him on the public square and he's a monster. You know, I just can't stand his politics. It's apparent. I've talked to a, another friend I've made, this is American in South Africa with Joshua Barron on the forum. We get on extremely well and have to see eye to eye. And uh, he's a basically conservative politically who can't stand Trump. And um, 
but he and I have dialogued about this, that the Trump, he says, is your typical Trump voter, just asleep, just completely asleep, has no grip on the public realm, um, just walking, sleepwalking into another election. We always vote Republican because they're the good guys and, you know, not very interested in politics, just wanting to be comfortable, living in the suburbs, just want to be comfortable. The same people that Martin Luther King, you know, 50, 60 years ago was pleading with, saying, wake up, you know, your country is full of injustice. People are dying and you think everything's just hunky-dory because you've got a nice fridge. And, uh, you know, and is like that. It really makes me think that, um, you know, that he's, he's just the, the, I shouldn't really have named him, but um, I, I'm just assuming your podcast isn't going to go so broad that, you know, it'll get to him. I'm going to go back and bleep it out. All right, thank you. And, uh, but I will say Micah Joseph, I don't mind naming, is my, my, I talked about our bromance, you know, he's a lifelong Republican, homeschooled himself, homeschooling his children from the John MacArthur setup. But Micah, to his great credit, has realized John MacArthur isn't all that, and he's got deeper and broader, and he's listening to the fathers. And um, we get, I really respect Micah, because although he and I are coming from very different places culturally, we're getting closer to each other because we're both learning. Yeah. Uh, I'm learning from him politically as well as, you know, he showed me early in the campaign, I said, how could you vote for Trump? Because he admits he's a re reluctant Trump voter. He knows Trump's a lunatic. But he voted for Trump because he says, don't you understand, the left is even worse. And you yeah. see, from where he, where he is in California, the stories he tells me are horrific. He makes the Democrats sound like absolute lunatics. And, and I think, you see, we never get that. Our media, MSN is American, but our BBC, all our media endlessly feed us. Look at the funny man, isn't Trump an idiot? And it's all we ever get. And Micah showed me, he said, yeah, but you're only, yes, that's negative, but you're only getting that negative. You're not being told just how lunatic our left wing is. Um, so that he's taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I said to him, but still, I don't think this man should be your president. I don't care what your politics is. Mm. And I don't, I don't mind. I try and, I try and repeat this, but I'm not sure that the message comes through. Like, I don't mind Trump as a pol politician, as if you need to do that. Like, my issue is the religious component and where yeah. that is the religious, like people have it in their mind. I'm a Christian, so I vote for Trump. And yeah. like that, that is where, like, it's just not yeah. okay. Uh, exactly. And, exactly. And some people feel as though he's like God's man and, and he can't do anything okay. wrong. And if you try and point out, like, I think if Christians are going to align, like it was something like 73 to 78% white evangelicals voted for Trump. Yeah. We're going to stand behind somebody that dogmatically, we need to be able to say, yes, but he has, we want him for this, but we're going to hold him accountable for his immorality and his unchristlike character and these other things. We and so and I don't see the evangelicals doing that. They're they're glorifying no. these things. The hypocrisy of Clinton is appalling to me because yes. Clinton, you know, Clinton's second term, the Monica, Monica Lewinsky scandal broke and. It was very clear to me that Clinton was an ex whatever you think of him as a person, he is a very odd man. Um, he was a very effective president. He did what he said he was going to do. He did it under difficult circumstances. He was he was much better at foreign policy than almost any president in my lifetime. Um, and he um, 
he was very capable and very popular and the right hated him just because he was good at his job and so he gifted them the Lewinsky affair um and uh and of course he's yeah he's no angel but the hypocrisy of the republicans and the way that they attacked him i lived through this in the 90s you know i followed it closely and they, they, they were revolting it was very obvious they were just a bunch of yapping dogs hyenas trying to they want to destabilize him for political reasons and they posed as if it was a moral issue and um but that was and then the way that they, then, they the, the way that they then they're somehow with trump it's a different standard you know it, it's yeah. uh it's it's that that's the thing that really you know america's always had it's not new it's not contemporary news that truth is subject to political um you know that there's a different truth on the right and on the left um and that the same the double standards thing is just endemic to the american political mentality um so yeah if you just keep religion out of it as the founding fathers intended keep religion free of the public square then you're much safer territory yeah yeah because these are two things that just don't mix and and that comes back to our dna as christians we it doesn't work like Islam works as a as a national religion, but Christianity just doesn't work as a theocracy. It's not a way to run a country. It's a way to, you know, right. it's a personal religion. And then it, it, it can have a tremendous way to speak to power when it retains its purity. But when it becomes this culture war of trying to get our guy in power so that we can have some way of ruling the country, I feel like it just does mm. not work and it destroys democracy because we can't have those de democratic discussions that we need to have. And then it-, it I, I disagree. I disagree with you. I think, you know what I said earlier about that Christianity Today thing about the poles of Christianity, the exile and the post-exile, pre-exile, or the remnant versus the um, remnant. Um, I think we need to be more ecumenical than that. I don't think Christianity is better as a privatized religion at all. I celebrate the periods when Christianity has had huge cultural whack. Um, I think the kingdom needs both, um, but that's a, it's a it's a dynamic in church history and in Christian history. Um, the problem with the patristic period is that Protestants tend to prefer pre-Constantinian persecuted Christianity, um, and then they they say it all went wrong with Constantine. That is an endless theme. Um, I just disagree. I, I think, but I think we need to stop because I need to get back to my family. Um, if you don't mind and then i'd love to carry on the conversation yeah yeah let's do that let's end it here i just really appreciate your time and uh yeah thanks for talking with us yeah